0: Well, yet one more good morning. My name is Brandon Barrett. I'm lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting, I'd also like to extend a welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us this morning. You find us in a series on the book of Mark. You can be turning there to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. If you happen to be using uh, under a chair somewhere nearby, you'll find a Bible. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 837. Uh, Before we jump in, uh, two quick announcements of my own. You'll see one of these in the bulletin. Uh, We're getting ready to start. I'm getting ready to start a a small group uh, called Christianity Explored, and it goes through the book of Mark. And it is for people that don't know what they think about Jesus and don't necessarily have any background in the Bible and have questions they want to ask, but they're scared to because they'll look like they don't know anything. And so if you don't know anything and you want to find out some, this study is for you. Uh, It's about who Jesus is. So if you're at a place where that would be something helpful for you, let, let me know you'll find the information in the bulletin. And second thing, this one's for college students. Uh, college students, the, some of you had the experience of me introducing myself to you like three times, uh, and for which I apologize. So, our college students, if you will send me an email with your picture and your name, I will learn your name and I will pray for you. Okay? So, that really helped me. So, if you want to do that and want to be prayed for, send it to me. My email address is in the bulletin. And then I won't feel bad and silly every Sunday morning. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. So, uh, we're looking at the book of Mark, and uh, the, kind of the overarching thing we've been looking at in Mark as we're actually going through the first half of it here in, in these next few months is the fact that Jesus is king. He's our king. And that's what he claimed to be. And so uh, last week, as Camper preached, we looked at this first part of Mark 2, and there we saw Jesus healing a paralytic, and we saw that this king that who, is, ha- who has come is a healer, that he has the power to forgive sins. And so this is a question we're going to look at today, though. Jesus comes as king, and and he's bringing his kingdom. Who gets to be in that kingdom? Who who gets to be a part of that? What's the price of admission? Who gets in? That's our question that um, our passage looks at this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we pray that right now, even this moment, that you would open up your word to us, that we might hear your voice, because this is your word and you are speaking to us. And some of us come this morning maybe very uh, eager and ready and expectant that when we look to Mark, chapter 2 right now, that that we will hear from you. And others of us um, maybe not so sure and maybe even very skeptical that this ancient book could speak to us, but it is the living, breathing word of God. So would you surprise us this morning, all of us, with its power, with its relevance? Would you... uh, Would you bring your word to us in power? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. But there were many who followed him. And the scribes of Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." This is the word of the Lord, and it's given for our good and for his glory. Okay, here's the point of what we're going to see this morning about this invitation that Jesus sends out. Jesus comes and he gives an open armed invitation to the lost, to the needy, to the fallen, to the far away. And that invitation, that kind of grace from Jesus, is scandalous. It causes a scene, it upsets the status quo, it runs directly against the expectations of the people around him at that day, and certainly the religious professionals, and in some ways it runs counter to our expectations as well. So we're going to see here that uh, Jesus' scandalous grace, who it's for and what it teaches us and how it changes us. Those three things, who it's for. What it teaches us and how it changes us. First, who it's for. We see as this story opens up in verse 13 that we're introduced to, to the main character. His, his name is is Levi. Jesus is walking along as he has become a well-known teacher and uh, healer, in fact. And, as he walks by, he sees this man, Levi, at his, um, at his tax booth, uh, where they were near the city of Capernaum. It was on uh, the border of two different areas of the Roman Empire in Palestine. And so there, there would have been a border tax for people that are traveling from one area to the next, and Levi would have been responsible for, for charging that tax as people came into that country. Uh, may well have also been the one who was charged with levying taxes on the local fishermen, many of whom now are following Jesus. And as you, you might imagine, somebody who w- was not very well liked in his community. Uh, th- this man, Levi, uh, The story is told in two other places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 5, tell the same story. And in Matthew 9, Levi is identified by his other name as Matthew. One of the twelve disciples and the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. There are other uh, people in the New Testament who are known by more than one name. And this, this man, Levi, is that same Matthew. That same one who comes to relationship with Jesus, and so as I said, he's he's a tax collector. He works for the local king. Uh, when Herod the Great passed away, the, his part of the kingdom was split up in, among his four sons. One of whom was Herod Antipas, who is the one in charge of Galilee, where this area where Jesus and his disciples are. And so, when a tax collector takes taxes, they're doing that for this king, this corrupt king. And not only for that, they're doing for the king's overlord, for Rome. Ultimately, a tax collector works in service of Rome, that bitterly hated occupying force. And the tax collectors—it it, it was sort of a um, oh. I, it was sort of a franchise, maybe would be a good way to put it, that a, a local tax collector, he was charged by the Roman government to collect a certain, number of, a certain amount of taxes, and whatever he could collect above and beyond that was his to keep. So your local tax collector was somebody that you hated. He was a, he was a uh, collaborator with Rome. He was somebody working against your community, and he's somebody who was making himself rich off your hard-earned work. And so he would have been despised. So much so that, uh, as you may be familiar, the, the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments says this, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie. But later, Jewish rabbis had an exception for that clause. Thou shalt not, not lie except to tax collectors. <laughs> because they were so well known to be making uh, their money off uh, off graft and uh, off this sort of unfair dealing that, that the rabbis said, you. It doesn't count when you lie to a tax collector. And all that is important to say because when Jesus comes onto the scene, he comes to Levi, this guy. It's upsetting, isn't it? It upsets me too. And here's why He comes to Levi, who was this despised uh, person, and he comes to him and he says this. We see it very simply here. He comes and he says, Follow me. Now, when. Uh, Jesus comes and says those words to Levi. He's not simply saying, Levi, come with me. Let's let's go take a walk around town and have a a chat. When he comes and says, follow me, he is saying, he's bringing all the weight of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. He is coming and saying, Levi, come and turn away from everything you have in life and come and follow me. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you a new way of being. I'm going to turn everything upside down for you. It's the very same thing that he said in chapter 1 to these fishermen on the side of the sea. Uh, As he spoke it to Andrew and to Peter and to James and John, he comes and says, follow me. In Luke's account of this story, in Luke chapter 5, it adds the words that it says that he followed him and, and left everything. See, Matthew is, Levi is turning his back on everything that came before and following Jesus so here we've got, with this tax collector, a picture of Jesus coming to those who are socially and religiously outcasts, who are on the outside, just as he had come and said the very same words to those who were socially and religiously on the inside, these hardworking fishermen that he'd come to already. He comes to Levi, someone who does not deserve his call. And that's the very point. And look at what Levi does immediately after that. Jesus calls Levi, and the next thing he does is Levi throws a party for all of his friends. Now, who are the friends of a tax collector? Somebody who's an a religious outcast in society. It's other tax collectors and sinners, as they are called here. People who are on the outs of the official Jewish religion, who are not allowed to come to the temple and worship with their people, who are considered to be beyond the pale of God's reach and God's people. He comes to them, and he invites them to a dinner. And that's remarkable for a couple of reasons. One, it's remarkable because Jesus goes to this dinner. Now, when when you go to a dinner at someone's house, I mean, we know something of just the goodness it is to share a meal with somebody and the intimacy that often, and friendships that often comes through that. But in first century uh, ancient world here, it, it carried even more freight than that. If you went to somebody's house... For a meal, it was it was a publicly known fact, and it carried the weight of saying, I accept this person. I'm willing to be identified with this person. It's not just come over and you know have a nice dinner. It's it's come into fellowship in connection with me. Dinner was called it was referred to as table fellowship. It meant something that you would go to someone's house for a meal or that they would invite you. And Jesus goes to all the wrong people certainly in the eyes of his contemporaries. One commentator puts it it this way, when Jesus goes to this dinner, Jesus is banqueting with the bad. He's going where no good Jewish rabbi would go, where no good Jewish person would go. He's going into the presence of tax collectors and sinners, and it's a surprise. It surprises, as we'll see, the Pharisees. But it's a surprise, honestly, for another reason as well. It's a surprise because the tax collectors and sinners, they want to be with Jesus. Do do you get how surprising that is? When Levi throws this party for his friends and he invites them, they knew who Jesus was. It's not like they showed up and said, oh, here's this guy named Jesus. Maybe he's another tax collector like the rest of us. He was a well-known local teacher and healer, and he was the one claiming to be bringing in the kingdom of God. When Jesus showed up at that meal, Everybody knew what was at stake. Here is a respected person. And Jesus was even more They knew than they knew. Here is a holy person. In fact, here is the most holy person. And all of these people who are living on the outs of their religious society wanted to be with him. You see that? That they looked at Jesus in, in all his holiness and goodness, and they said, I don't want to run from that. I want to be closer to that. I want to know him. They were drawn like a magnet to Jesus because here is a group of people who knew their need and had found the one that would be able to meet them in their need. So Jesus came. Who did he come for? He came from Levi. He came for Levi's friends. And he also came uh, for, for those who would embrace uh, the riddle of Jesus. There's a riddle here, you know, something that's a saying that takes a few minutes to kind of unknot and unravel. Um, there's, Camper opened the door again last week in a sermon for, for bringing in another three months of illustrations from the Lord of the Rings. So here we go. Uh, the Hobbit, Bilbo, uh, on his 111th birthday, as he, unbeknownst to his friends that are gathered, as he is getting ready to go on a long voyage and never come back, he stands up to, mit- to give a speech in the, of this, uh, in the middle of this birthday party. And as he gives this speech, here's what he says. He says, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. This was unexpected and rather difficult. There was some scattered clapping, but most of them were trying to work it out and see if it came to a compliment, just as you are, too. I'll let you work on that later. Okay, but he comes. Bilbo stands up and he says, you know, I like half of you less than half of what you deserve. And Jesus is saying something here as well that makes everybody stop and just sort of a puzzle for a second. You hear what he said? And it has to be worked out. He says, look, uh, when they ask him, why is he come? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So when you stop and work that through, what do we see? We see that Jesus here is claiming to be the physician. He's claiming to be the one who comes to heal and to forgive. And he says that he came to call people who are sick, people who are sinners. And he says that he did not come to call people who are righteous and who are well. And As we puzzle this through, one thing that is clear here is Jesus is not, and we need to be careful here, he's not saying, in fact, this is the punch of what he's saying. He is not saying that there are some people who are well and don't need him. And there are some people who are righteous and don't need what he comes to offer. What he is saying is that I have come to those who are sick and know it. I have come for those who are sinners and know it, that I might come and bring healing and forgiveness. I, like a good doctor, have come for them. Who does Jesus invite into his kingdom? People that need him like that. Now think about that for a second. And at some level, isn't that a little bit offensive, maybe? Well, it scandalized the uh, religious professionals of his day. We see Him here in this passage, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the people who were very concerned and very successful at keeping God's rules and making sure that other people knew it as well. Um, not, not to totally, um, not to totally uh, give sort of a false impression of the Pharisees. I mean, they were in many ways very devout and earnest people who wanted to take God's law very seriously. And then when they hear Jesus saying and doing things like this, they're scandalized. And they, they show it when they come to Jesus' disciples. They don't even go straight to Him. They, they go to them and say, you know, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're not just asking a question. It's not like coming to Grace Covenant and looking and saying, you know, why does it that Brandon and Camper look like they're always wearing the same stuff? Don't they, do they call each other on a Sunday morning before? Like, they're not looking for that kind of information. What they do is they come to Him and they ask a very loaded question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors And And you can hear the judgment behind it because he certainly shouldn't be. One commentator puts it this way. In table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus scandalously asserts the profligate love of God over merit. That is a scandal of grace. And he goes on to say, "...the scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance." Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. Now, i got to tell you, when I was studying for this and preparing this week, I knew where the sermon was going, I know where this passage is going, but when I heard it said like that, part of me just stopped for a second. Really? Does Jesus come with that kind of grace that He would go meet people, as it appears that He does in this passage, even without repentance on their part? without any indication they even wanted what Jesus had to offer. He comes to Levi and says, follow me. And Levi throws a party and all his friends come and Jesus goes there. And Jesus did not stand up and give them a sermon before the appetizer and say, you know, amen, anybody who would come to me may come and eat now. He went in and sat right down in the presence of tax collectors and sinners. So, does our sin not matter at the end of the day? I think if we see how dramatic and pointed what Jesus is doing right here, if we're tracking with them, then it should maybe make us ask that question. It pushes us that far to the edge. It's similar to what happens in Romans chapter 5 and 6, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the glory of God's grace, and he says this after talking about how gracious God is he answers a hypothetical question. He says, so what should we say then? If God is this gracious, should we just keep on sinning because it makes God's grace look that, much, look that much more glorious? Should we just keep on sinning? And he says, of course not. You've died to sin. How can you continue to sin? But you see, Paul knows that if you're, if you're walking down the road with him about the magnitude and glory of God's grace, that that question is going to come to mind. Because God's grace is that big that it would make you ask ask that question. And we come to the very verge of this too with Jesus coming right down in the middle. Tax collectors and sinners. That he might be with them before they show one ounce of any sort of uh, moral reformation of any kind. See, Jesus is by no means saying that sin doesn't matter. The deadly seriousness of sin is exactly what brought Jesus on his mission to begin with. That is why he came. But this takes us right on to our next point. Not only did, what did Jesus, uh, not, not only whom did Jesus come for, it also tells us something here in this passage about what Jesus' scandalous grace teaches us. Okay, and here's the first thing of two things. You got to get this. Here we go. You are not special, and I am not special. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this line recently uh, as I've met one-on-one with folks. You are not special. Contrary to what your sweet first-grade teacher always told you, and contrary to what your sweet mom used to tell you when you were growing up as she put her arm around you, you are not special. Now, of course, in some sense, your parents, you're special. Maybe your first-grade teacher, you were special. But there is something here for us. You are not special in the sense that we often use that word that I'm somehow unique and here's why that matters. That you and I are not special. And we need to hear it on maybe two different ends of a spectrum. And you might be on one end of the spectrum or the other. Or you might bounce back and forth between the two in the course of a given day. But you are not special. And so on the one, on the one hand, that means if you are in a place right now where you are overwhelmed by your sin. Or that you are shocked to see that it is still present in your life. And your thought... In that moment is, God could never forgive me. Not for this. Not for what I've done. Not for what I've said. Not for the harm I've brought in a relationship. He could never love me. He can love other people, of course. God's love is that big. But He can't love me. Well, the Bible has good news for you. You are not special. Your sin is not in some other and extra class that cannot be reached by Jesus. You are not special. And therefore... The very same grace that the Bible talks about being good for everyone else is exactly the grace that comes and meets you, meets you in your sin and your need as well. You are not special. God's grace is very good. See, this remedy of God's for sin-sick souls is the same remedy for you as well. Christ's death and resurrection for us. And it comes to us by grace. God's free, unmerited love lavished on us when we did not deserve it. Here's another way to put it. You do not have to fix your life before you come to Jesus. In fact, in fact, you can't fix your life before you come to Jesus. Remember, it is the sick who need a physician. Reminds me of a friend who first kind of put it to me that way once. Uh, she was a student at VCU years ago. She's a part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship there. And after an InterVarsity large group, she, uh, she left with, with uh, the woman who is her staff worker. And they went and sat down in this woman's car and began to talk. And it, it was like for her that the lights finally came on. And she realized that this call of Jesus was for her as well. And she came to faith. She put her faith in Christ right there. And so now there's a parking deck in Richmond over at VCU, and I've seen it, that she points to and says, you know, there is where I first came to know and receive God's grace. There is where I became a Christian. There is where I was reborn, because there is where she first found that. She didn't have to straighten out her life before she came to Jesus. But he had a grace like this that welcomed her in. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. God's love does not look for loveliness or worth. It bestows them both. Now, that's one end of the spectrum. God can't possibly reach me in my sin. The other end of the spectrum is maybe you're at a place where you just feel like you're doing, honestly, pretty well, right? Your life is mostly together. You're basically a good person. Certainly better than the people around you. Certainly better than the people in your hall certainly better than the people on your street. You know, you're, uh, you're making the grade. And when we fall into a place of thinking that, we see how easy it is just to feel just ever so slightly superior to those around us. Those are the people who haven't quite gotten life under control. Those are the people who really need Jesus. Those are people not like me. Maybe we find ourselves patting ourselves on our back for our good behavior, for our good decisions, for our moral excellence. Well then, this part of what it teaches us, that you are not special, it's good news for us too. You are not special. And you're really not as good as you think you are. But there's good news for you. There is one who is good. The one who embraces not only the one who is running away from him in sin, but the one who is being good and dutiful and hardening himself in that kind of sin too. We have a God who reaches to both ends. There's a line from uh, the old hymn, Rock of Ages, that says this, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring, not my good works, not my good record, not my good effort. So if you're like me, you might find yourself oscillating between those ends of the spectrum on any given day. God couldn't possibly love me, not when He knows this about me. And then ten minutes later, but I'm sure better than that person... <laughs> I'm doing all right. Gospel comes to us at both ends of that. Okay, so you and I are not special. Second thing it teaches us, and this just comes through loud and clear in this passage, I think. If you want to be with Jesus, you have to go where he goes. If you want to be with Jesus, you have to go where he goes. Do you notice the other characters in the story, and they're, they're kind of in the background, But Jesus comes and he calls Levi to himself and Levi invites him to a dinner and all the tax collectors and sinners come and look who else is there. Jesus' disciples, the followers of Jesus, are right there with him. And this is relatively early in Jesus' ministry and I can only imagine that at least for some of them, sitting there at dinner that night, looking around thinking, what am I doing here? (laughs) And what is Jesus doing here? These are the very people I've grown up despising and yet, Jesus is here, and so am I. The disciples were with him that night at dinner. When I was in college, I took a, I took an EMT class, an emergency medical technician. They're the people, the first responders, the people that show up if you have a car wreck or you you know, call and there's a fire at your house. Um, And so I took this class. I was fascinated by it. I wanted to learn some medical stuff. And it was a fairly rigorous class and all kinds of stuff you had to learn. So we go through these weeks and weeks of classes, and I get my certification. And then I did not do what many people in my class went on to do, which was to, like, volunteer at a local rescue squad. Because I got to the end of this, and I realized that after all of my training, there was something true of me at the end of the class that was true of me at the beginning of the class. And that was that I, I don't really like blood. <laughs> and I'm terrified of needles. And you want somebody to come to the scene of the accident who is not scared off by your blood. <laughs> and is not scared to bring a needle when necessary. And it just, it just highlighted for me, here it was, there was this thing that I, that I learned so much about. But at the end of the day, when it came to using it, I didn't want to be there. And what we see here is that Jesus' disciples, those who would follow Him, who would know Him, who would become students of Scripture, who would become lovers of God, at the end of the day, we must too go where Jesus went. It's not simply enough to know the Bible well. It's not simply enough to have good fellowship at the church and to be in a good small group. At the end of the day, you have to go with Jesus on His mission. If you want to be with Jesus, you have to go where He goes, and He goes to the lost. He goes to those who do not know Him. He goes to those who are on the outside. You want to know Jesus and have an intimate relationship with Him? Go be with Him. And the Scripture here tells us that that's where Jesus is. What do we learn? Well, we learn that we're not special. And if we want to know Jesus, we have to go go where He is. And now lastly, and very briefly, I'm just going to kind of name them, how it changes us. This scandalous grace of Jesus... How does it change us? Five things. Knowing this will do these five things, or should be, or will in a growing, increasing way for us. It'll make us confident. It'll make us confident. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this. The very same ethos that's being portrayed here as Jesus goes to sinners. It says this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God has seen the very worst in you more clearly than you have seen it. And He's embraced you nonetheless because of the goodness of Jesus. If you got that more, wouldn't it make you more confident? Wouldn't it free you up from spending so much time spinning your wheels about, could God really love me? I'm not special, just like everybody else, and He says He does. And He did this for me. Just an ordinary sinner saved by grace. So now I can be confident. Not that I've got it together, but that Jesus has me. It will make us confident. Second thing it will do, it will make us humble. James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who know... That their sinners' need of, of God's goodness and grace. Those who are sick and know they're in need of healing. And we come to see that we bring nothing to Jesus. It makes us, it makes us humble. Because we don't have a thing to offer Him. And He has everything to offer us. And He lavishes it on us. And so now where is the pride? Where is the two-inch stool that we can stand on and look down on the people around us when we are all desperately in need? God's grace. We find it in Him. It makes us humble. As we become confident and humble, it makes us grateful. We have someone to say thank you to, and we have something for which we should say thank you. God's grace lavished on us. It's going to make you want to sing and to pray something other than just your needs, but thank you. It's going to give you strength and hope and endurance in the middle of hard situations when you realize in the middle of all this darkness, in the middle of this particular trial, in the middle of this particular suffering, there's a more foundational truth, and that is that God loves me. And that cannot be broken. And so I can say thank you for God's goodness, even in the midst of hard circumstances. It's going to make us confident, humble, and grateful. It's going to make us approachable. Again, remember Jesus, the most holy one there is, and people who very much, knowing their own sin, flocked to Him. His holiness didn't scare them away. It drew them in. Are we approachable people to the world around us? Or do people simply smell judgment and rejection? Do they see the goodness of Jesus in us in such a way that it makes them want more? Do they sense Jesus' compassion and care and love in, such a, in us in such a way that it makes them want to know? What is it that you have got? Are we approachable? And lastly, it makes us purposeful. If this is the work that God is about, if knowing Him means going where He goes, and that means that we, too, have to engage the community around us. It means we have to pray for our neighbors, pray for our non-believing friends and family members. And it means this, too. If you don't have any non-believing friends, people who don't know Jesus, that are within your circle of connections, or you're not praying towards that end, then something is desperately wrong. It's not just sad, it's tragic. Because it means that what God is about, calling the lost to himself, that's where he's going. It means we're not taking part in that. We're missing out on a huge part of what Jesus is all about. He means for us to engage the world around us. And that means we must pray. And we must speak to people. We must share lives with people. And we must show them and offer them the love of Jesus for them. Now you might just feel like I just brought the hammer Maybe you're in that point where you're saying, it's true. How could God love a sinner like me? You're not special. And God's grace is good enough and deep enough and wide enough for you. Even as we look at failures maybe here. God is at work. He's at work in you if you were following Him. And He's at work around you. And He calls you to more. More. He invites you to more. He wants you to care about the people around you that are lost too. And He will bring them along your way. Would you pray that He might do that? Would you ask for courage and boldness? Would you repent if you've been ignoring it? And come back and know that your God is gracious. He forgives us our sins. And He forgives us our failures. And He upholds us in our moment of need. How is this going to change us? It will make us confident and humble and grateful and approachable and purposeful. If we know this Jesus, the one who welcomes the sinner and welcomes the sick, and then when we read this story, we see that he's not just talking to them, he's talking to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is such a story of just scandalous grace offensive grace to the religious professionals of the day that you would come and share your love in this kind of way that it would come to the very darkest corners of our world in the darkest corners of our own hearts and call us to life but if it were not this if it did not work this way then none of us would know you for we are sinners and we are sick but you are good and you are a physician and a healer and you bring all the help and all the forgiveness and all the healing we could possibly need. It is found in you, Jesus. And so we say thank you to you, our Savior. Give us grateful hearts, joyful hearts, humble hearts, confident hearts. Make us approachable and purposeful as we follow you. We want to be where you are. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.